Hello, movie lovers. Welcome home. My name is Amy Henserling, and you are listening to Watch This List Unplugged. Today is a very special day for me because I am ending the Hidden Gems uh, Unplugged series. The first one I did was Midnight Movies, which was, I suppose, its own special version of fun. Um, but Hidden Gems is a lot more my jam. Uh, so that ended up bearing a lot more fruit, a lot more faves for me. But I have um, my dear friend Joel back, uh, the deaf kid on Letterboxd, uh, with me to uh, finish this off, which is uh, fitting because when I had my first series season, uh, the last episode of that series was called Rewatch This List, which Joel and I did not know at the time was going to be the, the finale, but ended up being the finale uh, of that series. So this just feels like I'm coming full circle to have him. Uh, and we're ending with his gems, which also feels uh, like it's a good decision on my part. Joel, how are you doing? Are you glad to be back for the end of my series? I am. And I feel like this must mean that when I record my episodes, we're going out on a high note basically. It can't be yes. tough. So why bother? Um, so why bother? There's no one else but you, Joel. It has to end with you each time. It's kind of like with Frank. It always has to start with Frank. So this might have to be a trend where I start with Frank and end with you each time. Well, I didn't, I didn't do an appearance for the Midnight Movies uh, uh, mm -hmm. series. But, you know, that's not my jam. I, I did enjoy a few of those. Uh, what was it called? Roar was amazing. Yes. That was... I think that Lau Lau's movie was the one that the most people watched, like okay. as a result of like of all the things that I've done, the response to Roar was <laughs> it was um, quite something to behold because I kept seeing it come up and then I had to keep remembering the film. Yeah, it's it really it really was. Uh incredible i watched it with my dad i watched it first by myself uh and mm -hmm. was just amazed that this film could even exist and then i watched it with my dad i told my dad about it and uh i was like we should watch this it's hilarious and we watched it and he was he basically had the same reaction i did where he just could not stop laughing but for me the second watch was even funnier because I was I was basically reduced to tears multiple times at how incredibly farcical the whole thing Mortifying. is. Mortifying. It, it's, it's also one of those movies that truly, you know how people say, like, you have to see it to believe it? Yeah. This is that film. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel. It, it is. Like, um, you, yeah. Uh, yeah, it really is. You have to see. You, you just cannot believe anybody would be so stupid to acquire hundreds of big cats. I don't, I don't know. Maybe hundreds is an exaggeration. Dozens of big cats. That seems like that seems appropriate. And mm -hmm. other large animals in Southern California and shoot a movie over six years in which hundreds of people <laughs> get injured. Yeah. Without a proper animal wrangler or anything. Uh, and, and the fact that it's actually watchable 
Um, I mean, it's not good. In, mm. in, it's good in the sense that it's so bad it's good. It really is one of those movies. Um, I, anyway, I'm forever grateful to Lau for introducing Lau. me to that. Yes, that was probably my most successful midnight film. Um, but then uh, for for um, Hidden Gems, where you chose one that you and I had picked, uh, you had picked actually, Mm-hmm. for our monthly watch list and um it was actually the month that we did colors in the title i was gonna bring that up i remember so there was we did like yellow sky and some other ones it, but yeah basically movies blue valentine with color. blue valentine i was uh-huh. trying to remember the title i knew it had blue in it but i couldn't remember mm-hmm. it yeah blue valentine um i'm trying to remember i don't remember Red any Dust. of the other titles Red Dust, okay. Red yeah. Dust, White Heat. White Heat. I knew there was a white in there somewhere. Oh, the one that you didn't love, uh, Raise the Red Lantern. I, my opinion on that has uh, altered a little bit. I've, I've, I appreciate it more in retrospect. Uh, I still don't like the main character at all. But uh, mm-hmm. I, my, yeah. it is such a beautiful film. Otherwise, like so stylistically distinct. Maybe it's not considered that distinct in its own tradition what would that was that from hong kong or from mainland china i don't know i don't know actually i don't remember that exactly i feel like i know that you didn't you didn't sympathize with her initially oh also joel blue collar oh was that that month blue collar was amazing uh i love blue collar i need to rewatch that i know Um, you were blown away by that one i was uh, just I know we're getting di- digressing here a lot, but um, <laughs> the yeah, okay. the way they speak in there, I don't know how much they actually had a script versus how much was ad-libbed or improvised, but the way they speak is, it's just such a, this is not how I speak, but it sounds like how normal people speak. I always, I have a weird pattern of, of speech in my opinion. It seems like the way I speak is weird, but um <laughs> The way pe- people speak when you just meet normies on the street, this is how they talk a lot of times. And it's such a celebration of that, an embrace of that. It's disgusting at times, but at the same time, there's just something very human and real about it. Uh, I love that movie. It's amazing. So, yeah. A lot of people do. That's a, That was one of Ebert's favorites, too. I think that's why we ended up putting yeah. it on there because it was I think that a was great movie list, too. Schrader's first movie, wasn't it? His first directorial movie was it his first directed movie i, I want to say that doesn't seem exactly some. right to me but okay. it but it, well i mean it could you could be right you could be right you could be right for well, some reason taxi i thought driver. that uh gigolo was first yes he yeah. wrote taxi driver but that was definitely scorsese yeah did, obviously. right you know that yeah, um, yeah but uh we'll have to look this up somebody is probably screaming in their head right now uh, as often is the case, hmm. uh, that's like when Swart forgot uh, Chunking Express, and we were going on about like the Wong Kar Wai movie, and then I got like four text messages afterwards, and they were like Chunking Express, and I was like, "Thanks, guys, not helpful now, Wait. but thank you." I'm- I I have not seen Swart's episode yet. I have it saved to my YouTube playlist. Um, unfortunately, it's okay. You know, it's been really busy. I've had a bunch of huge podcasts come through lately. But uh, I will listen to it. Mm. 
And I will, uh, I'll message you as well to let you know that it was chunking. Express. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I will not let that slide. Um, and I have to, I have to, uh, you know what, actually, Joel, so before Joel and I started recording, uh, he asked me what my new series was going to be after Hidden Gems. And what I'm going to do is instead of announcing it now, I'm going to announce it at the end. So you got to stick with me or you got to fast forward. Oh, they're going to be sticking with us. The next thing is going to be. They're here for me. You think so? <laughs> yes. You're here for Joel. Forget yeah. me. Forget watch this list. Yes. And of Joel course, is they must. Joel eye candy here. <laughs> That's the first time anyone said that about me, but <laughs> it's finale time. Cheers. Okay, yeah. so Joel, your first movie, your first film that we're going to cover is the Browning version, which is a uh, based on a play by Terrence Radigan. Terrence yes, Radigan, and yeah. it's from 1951, directed by Anthony Asquith. Um, go ahead. I feel like we should speak in a British accent, but that would probably be too hard. But go ahead and explain, set this up for us as if um, we had no idea what it was, which a lot of people probably don't. Yeah, well, I mean, it is a hidden gem. Uh, I think I checked it, it has like 4,000 logs. So it's definitely pretty, mm. pretty not very well known. So the movie is a story about a school teacher at a British prep school seems to be it, according to the notes, it says a public school, but seems to be like a fancy, mm. fancy school, boarding school, maybe. Uh, and like dead poet society. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's yeah. actually a boarding school. Um, now that I say that, but the kids are all dressed in suits. Um, it's set. This, the movie is 1951. feels like it's set earlier than that. Uh, it's definitely after world war two. Cause they do make a reference to uh the war uh mm -hmm. which does become an important plot point actually when they when they mention that or a turning point it's not really okay i'm getting distracted um so this teacher whose name is andrew crocker harris nicknamed the croc which i think is such a great nickname uh for him he's this sort of mm -hmm. listless rundown uh man who's beaten down by life and he is about to retire from this particular school because of ill health. And he's, it's too much work. It's too hard on his heart condition. So he's going to go somewhere else. And he has this final day that is just like any other day. And it's kind of sad to watch him operate in class and see that the students don't really like him, except for one mm. kid who kind of likes him. And then you find out over the course of the movie why he's so beat down by life. And it's really, really tragic, really hard to watch at times. It's it's a tearjerker uh, in some scenes. It's, it's also just, it's really one of the best scripts that uh, I've ever had the pleasure of, of hearing. The, the way they turn a phrase in some of these scenes is, is amazing. Uh, I feel like that's a, decent setup did i miss anything there yeah no i think it's it's uh kind of in a way of uh sweet smell of success in the sense that uh the vitriol like the oh, yeah. way that that um one of the characters is really cruel uh is especially well written because she just uh 
it's so targeted to, to do maximum damage. So oh, yeah. a lot of the lines are just brilliant in that sense, I think. Yes, uh, there's one particular scene. Actually, there's two different scenes, but one particular scene uh, where. How, how far do you want to go into the plot here? Yeah, we, you go ahead. This is the finale, okay. so <laughs> you, we don't have to spoil everything, but I, I do whatever you feel like stands out to you that you want to point out that that yeah. will allow people to still enjoy. Right. So because it's his final day, one of his students is a teenager. I think he's like 15 or so in the movie. His name is Kaplow. Mm -hmm. And he is like, I forgot to mention this earlier. Crocker Harris is a classics teacher. So he teaches Greek and Latin literature in the original language. And he's doing mm -hmm. these private lessons for Kaplow mm -hmm. on Agamemnon which I'm not even sure if I said that correctly. Uh, this, you did. Well done. Cool. Uh, which is a play written by an ancient Greek playwright, Aeschylus, who uh, we can get into the significance. That's why it's called the Browning version, because it's about, there's a reference to Robert Browning's translation. Anyway, uh, he, he gives, uh, Taplow gives Crocker Harris a copy of the Browning version of, of Agamemnon. And it caught it. There's a little inscription in Greek that Taplow writes, which is something like um, God from afar looks, looks graciously on upon upon a gentle master. I wish I remembered the exact line, but it's something like that. And Crocker Harris, who knows he's an absolute failure as a teacher, breaks down, cries uh, and has this moment of weakness where he feels like he feels happy that someone appreciated him, but he also feels really bitter because he had. He knows that it's not true. Um, and then his wife comes in and tells him that Taplow was just sucking up to him to get a good grade or get a promotion. I'm not sure how the British school system works, but to get promoted to an upper class the next the next year. And the way in which she says it, like there's mm -hmm. another guy in the room and she just delivers it in this most venal aggressive hateful way and there's another guy in the room who's like don't do it i know what you're doing and don't do it and she does it don't and she just it. breaks his yeah. spirit in that moment and it's it's one yeah. of the it's one of the nastiest feelings i've ever had watching a scene like just ooh, this woman is evil <laughs> yeah it's like uh, it's like who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, really, mm -hmm. uh, the whole time, which is another Lehman. But like, it's the same thing where it's just like um, someone knowing you so well that they can destroy you verbally. Yeah, uh, there's something about that, and it's very present in this movie. She has a lot of pain herself, but I feel like it's masterfully done. Mm -hmm. Each character. Uh, and their sort of interrelationships because the person who's standing there listening to her say that is also the person that she is having the affair with. Yes. Um, and so it's like he obviously is sort of complicit in, um, you know, the the sort of like not caring about Crocker Harris as a yeah. person, right? The mm -hmm. disrespect of that, but then for the first time he's seeing his lover 
as she is. Yes. So there's a lot going on and it's quite deep. Yeah. Like you can tell early on the, the, the guy who's having the affair with Crocker Harris's wife, his wife is Millie. His name uh, is Frank Hunter. I think if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. he doesn't really like her that much. You can see that he's just sort of having this affair because it's, it's available. Pity. Uh, and and there, it's there. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's a sense to, you get the feeling from some other lines that she is, she's slept with quite a few of the staff members there over the, over the time period. I mean, it's 18 years. I think they said that Crocker Harris has been there. So you get that feeling, although I'm not hundred percent sure, but mm-hmm. he doesn't really like her. There's hesitance of whether he wants to even carry on this affair any longer, but when he sees her do that to him and he, he likes Crocker Harris. He's not a great friend, obviously. He's right, right, right. Stooping his wife, but yeah, he's he likes Crocker Harris, and he sees her do that, and he just he he's like, I've seen you as who you are. Um, there's a great scene too where Crocker Harris and Frank Hunter are talking, and he explains why it ended up this way. There's a lot of subtext going right. on there, uh, which I think is relates to the script writer Terrence Radigan it was originally based on a play about his personal life uh, I think it's pretty strongly hinted that Terrence Radigan wrote Crocker Harris as gay uh, at a time when that was of course not at all acceptable um, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of bitterness there and a lot of love that's turned sour he has that that line, Crocker Harris has that line where he says he didn't realize that not being able to provide one kind of love would drive out the other kind of love. So there's there's a lot of empathy for these characters, both of them, even though Millie is really, really hateful uh, by the end. Right. But you could see over time how that they could end up that way. I think it's mm-hmm. just such a rich character study, and it's not just about him. There's uh, all three of them, plus Taplow, plus just the whole thing of like retirement, something coming to an end. Mm-hmm. Really, um, there's a lot of actual, um, I suppose uh, you can tell me what you think these, I-, I would characterize these as moments of clarity or just like epiphanies. Like there's another time where he's talking to his replacement teacher mm. and the teacher has one line that he says which also destroys him and sort of, oh, like all of a sudden he sees how other people think of him and it just shatters the illusion of, well, I thought I was pretty good. I thought I was okay. Turns out I'm not. So this movie is just full of these moments where someone does something or says something and there's a switch. It goes from like, and then you can't go back. Like mm-hmm. once you have that change, yeah, uh, you're 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 done. Like you're you are changed. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah, and that, it's not by choice. Yeah, that line. Um, he tries to the guy who says that to Crocker Harris. I did the replacement. I don't remember his character's name, but he says he says that they tell me something like you're known as the Himmler of the lower fifth, and he tries to cover for himself. Like 
that this was a reference to and apologize. how well he, yeah, but a reference to how well he disciplines the class. But of course, it also, I mean, I'm not sure how well Himmler was, that name would, would have been known at this time. Uh, I'm assuming mm. it, maybe it would be better, it probably would be better known than today, actually, uh, given the way what people know about history. But, but um, it <laughs> not exactly, yeah, sure. Okay. Disciplinarian, but also maybe uh, a little bit of a humorless scold, maybe genocidal maniac coded in there. Um, not exactly yeah. a, a positive uh, thing to call somebody, even if it, even if it is meant in a, just as a disciplinarian, it, it contains so much more. And you can see, yeah, how he sort of, he figures out who he remembers suddenly who Himmler was. He's a classics teacher. He maybe isn't that familiar, but he, he remembers. And then, oh, I get it. This is what, this is what the headmaster thinks of me, not just the students. Um, yeah, it, it is a really, right. a really devastating moment in the film. Um, it's a it's a heartbreaking movie on a lot of levels, really. It, and there's like a, but it's a it's a movie that uh, slowly unveils truths about his life. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, in that sense, that's why it's so powerful because it's letting the truth come in, even though it's painful. At least it's accurate, and he can do something about it. Yes, and I think that last part is especially apt he can do something about it um obviously a lot of movies they have these moments where characters have to change right and he sort of has that epiphany as well and he has a chance as well because he's going to a new school uh soon so i don't want to tell what happens at the end but really this film is about sort of realizing that your life isn't over yet, even if you have squandered a huge amount of it uh, in unhappiness, uh, in bitterness. And he takes that opportunity, um, at least partly. We don't really see a whole lot. The movie ends kind of at the end of the school term, but we, mm -hmm. we get the feeling that he is going to do something positive at that point uh hopefully so yeah it's a it's an uplifting movie uh, at the a, end i think i think so too and i think that it's it's just about finding some sort of hope that your life could be better yeah or that you can find joy again or um there's this whole other thing that happens with taplow this circumstance where he tells him how he was trying to do his own version oh, yeah. uh, uh, and make and make um, poetry himself. And so there's this also this thing of like that he has all this creativity and he quite he says it in such a British like an English way of like, you know, I, I thought it was quite good. It's like so understatement of like how how good it probably was, but he quite liked it, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's not There's finished. a lot of hope at the end. It's not finished right. as well, which I think is symbolic as well. Um, and it's a translation in verse of Agamemnon. It's his own translation, right. but in poetic verse. Uh, and he eventually finds this 
this copy that he had made and just forgotten about over the years. And then he, he actually throws it away. Um, but then Taplow recovers it for him and says, you know, you should finish this. And it's, it's a pretty powerful moment in, in my opinion. So, and there's, so does this speak? Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go uh, ahead okay. Joe. I will go ahead. Um, there's the symbology or whatever. That doesn't even sound like a word. Um, the meaning of that Agamemnon, a story about a guy who gets murdered by his wife, uh, which I didn't even catch the first time um, that, because I don't really know the story that well. But when now having now seeing it for the second time, I'm realizing, oh, this is why it's called the Browning version. It's a sto- about Agamemnon, and Crocker Harris is Agamemnon. Basically, he's this guy being killed by his wife uh, for, by the way, for justified reasons in a way. Uh, Agamemnon sacrifices their daughter, uh, sacrifices his daughter to get favorability from the gods and that his wife takes revenge on him for that. So there is a parallel there as well in, in choosing that for the story. Sorry, go ahead. That was my digression. No, I was going to ask you, uh, since you were a teacher for so long, does this reach you on that sort of level? Like, do you, um, cause I feel like you have some kinship with Crocker Harris I do. as far as like, yeah, your personality or just sort of the way in which I feel like you would really care about your students in a, in a certain way. I wondered if part of this reached you in that way specifically. A little bit. Uh, I, 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 I'm not going to compare myself to Crocker Harris. I'm actually quite happy. Uh, with my life. Um, <laughs> no, I don't mean that way. <laughs> I mean about your students, like sure. the conscientiousness. Sure. Uh, yeah. Like that feeling of, of being a failure as a teacher. I don't think I was a failure as a teacher. I oh, no, feel like I don't the, mean that. Yeah. the system was awful. I couldn't participate in it. Couldn't, could not participate in that system any longer, which is why I stopped. It's also a bit of a dead end career wise, but mm. um. I did relate to that, that sense that what can you do participating in this, this system? And it's a very oppressive system, even in the movie. Uh, this is not a system that I would want to participate in uh, at all. I wouldn't want to be a teacher in, in this very rigid. Uh, right. Yeah. So I, I related to that. I could see familiar aspects of what I remember as a teacher as well. Uh, so yeah, I, I a little bit, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Browning version is excellent. It's streaming on the Criterion channel now. Check it out. There have been um, sorry adaptations since then. Oh yeah, go ahead, Joel. Oh sorry. Uh, it's on YouTube as well, in in HD. So if you don't have Criterion, um, I'm not sure. If you don't have Criterion get criterion okay there's no excuse for not having criterion joel's trying to give you a way out i'm giving you no way out joel (laughs) you can't even argue with me uh but yes youtube thank you joel thank you at least you didn't say Tubi. um and um 
this is an excellent film that uh, we would have never seen if we hadn't done a color month. And uh, Joel just happened to be looking for something with a different color in it. And that came up. N neither of us had heard of it. It also stars Michael Redgrave, um, who won Best Actor at Cannes. And, and uh, the film won Best Screenplay at Cannes when it came out. Did it? So I did his, not know that. His performance is excellent. It is. Yes. It is. Uh, yes. It's, it's very, very good. I mean, Redgrave is brilliant british actor anyway so you're not it's not surprising but it's yeah his performance is is really you get on you get the sense of what gets under his skin very well mm. um and i don't mean that as it makes him angry i just mean like you get a sense of white what's the right phrase um the way he ticks i guess it's it's yeah it's brilliant it's a great performance it's pathos Okay, so the next one is a short film, which since this is the finale, that is my one and only, um, called Rail Rider. Rail Rider. Uh, it is uh, starring Buster Keaton from 1965. Um, tell us why you chose this, Joel, and when did you see it for the first time? So answer the second question first. Uh, I saw it earlier this year. Mm. I saw it twice. Um, back to back almost I loved it from the first viewing I have been doing a bit of a Buster Keaton dive going into some of his lesser known films uh, this year and this is easily the best of the bunch so far it's mm. you would you wouldn't think of it I think it's just not known because it's in the 60s as opposed to his heyday in the 20s uh, and just shout out mm. this is my Buster Keaton shirt um i noticed that at the yeah. beginning yeah good work well done i like it yeah uh it's very subtle mm -hmm. yeah you really only know because like of you'd the have hat. to know right you have to right, know right. the hat uh, yeah so i've yeah. been doing sort of this uh diving into his his films again because i absolutely love mm. buster keaton and sort of in that process i found out that oh he had this sort of revival in the 60s where you know, after a long period of obscurity, started doing TV, movies. Uh, he has, he appears in, uh, has a cameo in a Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum in 1964, I think. That's a Sondheim musical adaptation. Mm. Just a bit part. He has a few funny lines. And then he had a bunch of short films that he released. There's one called, called there's one called Film which is an experimental little thing. I didn't much like it. It's surreal. Mm. It's a silent film. I didn't get much out of it. But then he also has The Scribe, which is him as a journalist investigating workplace safety practices. And it's not nearly as funny as that sounds like it should be. Um, <laughs> yeah. But then there's this one, uh, The Railroader, uh, which I don't know if it's pronounced railroader or railroader, but I'm going to say rotter, but you could be, it could be rotor. Yeah. Definitely. I don't know. Um, but he yeah. plays this British guy uh, who it's a silent film. All the sound effects are overdubbed. It has a very cartoony mm -hmm. feel as well. Like old Warner brothers cartoons with the sound effects, but he plays this British guy who, standing uh on a bridge in london and he opens the newspaper there's an advertisement 
just says see Canada now. And he is hypnotized. He has this vision of what Canada is like. And he comes to the top of the bridge, jumps into the water. And then the first, the movie's first really good gag, there's a cut to him trudging out of the Atlantic Ocean onto the Canadian shore. <laughs> it's a really, it's a pretty funny gag that starts out the movie. Uh, and then he travels across the country. Uh, so I don't I feel like I've been talking a lot. Do you want to say something now? Well, so, so this is something that you just ended up seeing because you're focusing on Keaton. Another film that we watched together was the cameraman, yes. which we both really loved. Yes. Uh, and was exceptional. Mm -hmm. This one is only 25 minutes. So it's pretty brief. It's pretty silly. I would say, uh, but it's it's interesting to me how age plays such a factor because you can obviously see since he's older, his ability to sort of move in that graceful manner and sort of the ease is gone, I felt. So it's like the aging part of it is definitely part of what makes this interesting to me at least. Yeah, there's definitely a reliance more on props for for humor mm. rather than uh, physical antics. Um, he does some things. I, I'm not sure how much, like there's a whole documentary, a making of documentary called Buster Keaton Rides Again, which was made at the time uh, while shooting the movie in which they argue uh, Keaton and the director Gerald Potterton, they have this, they have these arguments about, you know, what the stunts should be or what, what, what should the jokes be and how should they work? And Keaton is insisting on doing more dangerous things. Um, but the director hmm. is like, no, you can't do that. It's too dangerous. Um, like there's a whole scene where he's supposed to originally, I think the conception was that he was going to do this on a bridge. So uh, we, we need to set this up a little bit. The reason it's called the Railroader is because he arrives in Canada and he sees the sign that says uh, Pacific Ocean is 4,000 miles that way. Uh, and so, well, he starts walking, but he encounters this little rail car, uh, motored cars, not like one of those old cartoon hand cars that you just seesaw back and forth. <laughs> it's a rail car and he just gets on it accidentally puts it in gear and then he just that's how he gets across the country but the, the so there was this one stunt i think if i remember correctly he was supposed to ride across this railroad bridge but try to be looking at a map at the same time so he's holding up this giant map and the map is supposed to hit him in the face and but because he's on this bridge, this has an added element of danger of, you know, losing your balance and falling off. And so he's pushing for it for to do the stunt. And the director's like, no, that's too risky. So they end up doing they end up doing that gag, but on not on a bridge where something bad could happen. Mm. It's just on this level ground where, you know, and it, it's funny. Um, the gag, it works still. But Keaton was. You know, yes, he was old, but he was still pushing to to do more stuff, which is endearing. You're reminding me of uh, Tom Cruise right now, because this is something that McQuarrie was saying was like that 
Tom's 61, I think. And uh, he's like, this guy can't be stopped. Like, you like, don't tell him no. If he has a crazy idea in his head of what he wants to do, just do it. Um, because he just fires people who say no. Like, he's just like, get out of here. I, I don't want to hear that. You, you don't say no to him. You say, let's figure out how we can make that work. You know, you brainstorm. But you can do that when you're Tom Cruise. Um, you're still mm-hmm. as, you know, when you have as much star power as, as he still has. Keaton didn't quite have that pull. He was 70 years old. This was long past right. his his heyday. Um, I mean, he was making pretty good money towards the end. I've read that he was making like six figures um, from all of his TV commercials. Mm. So he had a lot of um, he had a lot of pull, but not this kind of pull. And it's important to remember this was this is not uh, something that he conceived of and started shooting. This was an advertisement. Basically, it was a travelogue made by it was funded by the Canadian government to promote travel in Canada. I was going to say by Canada. Yeah. 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 (laughs) See Canada now. Yeah. In my opinion, doesn't really do the trick. Um, I mean, Canada's beautiful. You get you do get some shots of the cities and countryside. Um, There's a great shot when he arrives to the Canadian Rockies and you can just see them in the distance. But it feels like the director uh, really just wanted to work with Keaton and wanted to make a comedy movie. So that's what they did. And I, I mean, mm. I think it's great. Uh, it's nowhere close to being Keaton's best film. But for this era, uh, it's far and away. It's, it's one of his, I would put it above some of his 1920s shorts. It's really good, in my opinion. So, yeah. Yeah, and we've seen, uh, I watched The Cameraman because of you, and then I watched Seven Chances, which I also loved. And then uh, he was also in Limelight, which I really liked. That was another one that we had picked for one of our lists. Mm -hmm. So I think I know Keaton because of you, Joel. Really? Is that right? Yeah. I'd assumed Mm -hmm. that you'd already seen some Keatons before no, I had no, uh-huh. I hadn't before you had you introduced him to me. So I, I also fitting that we're ending with one. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did the general a long, long time ago, and then finally, mm-hmm. I really loved it. But at the at the time, I I just didn't do a deeper dive, and then I think 2020, mm-hmm. I did. I finally was like, I'm gonna just watch his most famous stuff. So Seven Chances, The Cameraman. I rewatched the general Sherlock Jr. Sherlock Jr., which is also one of my favorites. Cameraman's my absolute favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, watched a lot of his shorts, but only the stuff that would be maybe above three point seven, say on Letterboxd, is what I originally watched. So I decided to go back and watch some of his stuff that's maybe not as well known or not as popular today a lot of it's not that great like pale face for instance is a short uh mm-hmm. from like 1923 or something it's not that great but then i found the rail router and i was like this is this is for me i mean i don't have a ranking but it's somewhere in the top 10 keaton films in my opinion yeah the last hidden gem in the best film you've never seen 
which is the book I've been covering this entire time is uh, for the series is Tin Rillington Place, which is a 1971 film directed by Richard Fleischer, who I actually just saw uh, direct a film called Narrow Margin, The Narrow Margin. Oh. Uh, that was one of Jacob's picks. Yeah. I, uh, so it's the same director. I was going to, I need to see stars, that one um, as well. So. Oh yeah. The Noir on the Train. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that and was very intrigued yeah, by, by Jacob's description of it. So, yeah, I need to watch that. Go ahead. Yes. So, uh, Tin Rillington Place stars Richard Attenborough and John Hurt. It is based on real events uh, that happened regarding a serial killer who was doing so at Tin Rillington Place. He was basically like a landlord and had different people moving in and out. Mm-hmm. Uh, through the years and he would just murder women and uh, put them in the walls and just bury them in his backyard and got away with it for quite some time. So it's a very dark film, but like you said, Joel, it's like strangely uneventful or you said bloodless. Yeah, bloodless. uh, When you saw it. Which uh, I mean that in both senses of the term, like bloodless isn't, doesn't seem to be a whole lot of, excitement uh to it also bloodless in the sense there's i mean there is a there's one scene i think where one girl gets a bloody nose one of the victims gets punched and has a bloody nose that's about the only blood Mm -hmm. in the whole film um which is strange for i mean hollywood movies they often exaggerate the amount of blood (laughs) you know tarantino is uh you know, example number one here, uh, thinking of Django Unchained, where it seems like the bodies are only blood as they're getting shot. But mm-hmm. this is rather sedate, uh, which is also apt because that's he uses. Which is apt. Know, yeah. He sedates them. <laughs> yeah. That's how he that's how he mm-hmm. uh, that's the first step that he, he does towards killing them. And that's not a spoiler in any way. The very first scene in the movie is one of his murders and you see exactly how he does it. Uh, so, yeah. Right. It's just kind of a commentary on class systems and uh, how uh, the judicial system was sort of um, prejudiced, not prejudiced, but leaning more towards people who had served in the army versus John Hurt's character who can't read and write and is poor and so there's a lot going on that's subtext wise well there's also as a film i would say it's not great yeah john hurt i believe his character is welsh he and his wife are welsh and so there's Mm -hmm. that subtext as well you know uh proper english versus uh you know the welsh country country boy sort of thing that that -hmm. sort of aspect is is Mm -hmm. in there there's a reference early on where he says that there's also some Irish people interested in this apartment. So it's definitely a class thing, even though the killer is not himself wealthy or anything because he's got this proper manner because he's very British because he has that service record from the war, even though he has a history of some violent crimes that comes up as well. Uh, he's still believed. So, yeah, that that is an element of the film. 
It's definitely about appearances. So that one I am kind of sad that I'm ending on as far as our as far as the hidden gem, but a lot of people liked it a lot more than I did. So I think it's worth seeing, especially for just for the performances. John Hurt and Attenborough's performances are very good and it's kind of chilling. Attenborough, man, he's he's really creepy actually in this. He's he's effective uh in the role. Yes. It's kind of funny that the guy from jurassic park uh is played a serial killer uh at one point in his career it, but he's he, right he's pretty creepy and, and as effectively as he does yeah. yeah it also just it also just reinforces this like deep-seated terror that i have that you can never know anyone and that you can't go off of uh just a normal person and trust that they have good intentions. Yeah, yeah. And so. this is based on a true story. I'm not sure how accurate it is. Right. I didn't really read about it after. Did you? No, at the beginning, it says that a, a lot of the dialogue is taken straight from court documents. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're right. I, I remember that popped up on the screen. Um, so it's actually quite faithful. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the John Hurt's character, basically, um, you can see it coming the whole way that he's going to get framed for for one of these uh, murders. And it's really heartbreaking because you, you really feel bad for him because he's, he's not that smart. Mm -hmm. He's not that well-educated, uh, can't really read uh, hardly at all, apparently. And yeah, like when he's signing his confession or something like a statement to the police, uh, he the, the guy has to ask him, if you can't sign your name, just sign an x and he's like i know how to sign my name that yeah, yeah there's you feel bad for him even though he's not a yeah. good guy um feel bad for yeah. the characters right yeah. he doesn't deserve he this either, but... certainly yeah <laughs> not that anyone does yeah, but true. yes so 10 rillington place is good but not great worth seeing and um we will i'll end this by announcing that the um, next series uh, of Watch This List Unplugged is going to be comfort food films. Com comfort food? Joel was not <laughs> expecting that at no, all. No, I was not. Comfort, comfort food films. Comfort films. So it's, it's oh, okay. basically like what movie, what movie do you turn on if you're feeling sad? Or what movie do you turn on when you just want to restore your the joy in your life and remember good times and good days okay. it's like you know how you would go and get your comfort food right like if you were feeling bad well where would you go would you go to mcdonald's would you go to you know would you get a brownie somewhere or a milkshake like it's that sort of vibe okay. that makes more sense when you explain it um comfort food films <laughs> when you said food i'm immediately I'm I'm having trouble. Joel, most people would know what this means, but it's okay. I'm glad that you I'm glad that I got your actual reaction so that I could explain this yes. just in case someone is like of yeah, okay. of your mindset here. Well, that sounds great. Uh, so, um yeah, th this is going to be something I thought about doing um desert island flicks. Like what would you take to a desert island? I thought of like on your deathbed what's what's the things but then those were so um it felt like those would be constrained to a certain caliber 
or like pressure to choose movies that are like very yeah. highbrow. Mm -hmm. Whereas comfort food films, somebody could pick uh, Die Hard and that would qualify. Whereas you probably wouldn't pick Die Hard for your Desert Island. Yeah, no. And uh, I, I, I like Die Hard. I wouldn't pick it even as a comfort food film. I'm trying to, I have to think about that. Uh, oh. You know, I, honestly, any Keaton movie that I love would certainly qualify, but I'd have to think about that. That's mm -hmm. that's a that's good. That's a good series. Uh, I like the idea. I'm looking forward to it because I can sort of share in the nostalgia. Mm -hmm. Where because I'm watching these movies with the people whose picks these mm -hmm. are, and so it's going to be fun, I think, to be able to talk to them about why they love something, why it makes them feel better, and then me get to watch a bunch of movies that make people feel mm -hmm. better as opposed to you know something dark or disturbing, yeah, or like Jello, like I'm doing right now. I love Jello, but this is going to be a little bit more varied and uh, light. Hey, uh, maybe at some point, if I see it a few times, The Laughing Woman can be comfort food film for me. Can be your comfort that film. That was so amazing. Yeah, then we're really going to worry about your mental health and sanity. Oh, too. yeah. Well, I mean, as if there aren't enough reasons for that already. So. <laughs> yeah, already. <laughs> okay, so with that, um, I hope that everybody tunes in. I hope that everyone enjoyed the series. Who kept up with me, Joel. It is a pleasure always to speak to you. Mm -hmm. Follow him on Letterboxd and uh, we'll see you at the movies.